Hello, I'm Steve Dania, and this is the My Pride Playlist Pridecast from Virgin Radio Pride. In each episode, we speak to a member of the LGBTQ plus community and go through tracks that have soundtracked their lives. Now, due to rights reasons, the music is shorter than the original broadcast, but it's still great. Enjoy. The Virgin Radio Pridecast, proudly supported by Disney Plus, celebrating every colour of the rainbow. Steve Daniel with you tonight on my Pride playlist. This is Virgin Radio Pride tonight. I am joined by TV presenter, medical doctor, author, politician, uh, one of the best, one half of one of the best breakfast shows around on Talk TV with Claudia Liza. It is. Dr. David Ball. Hello. Hello. Welcome to my Pride Playlist. Thank you very much indeed. It's a great pleasure to be here. Very excited. We know each other. We do. We do. <laughs> not intimately, but, no, no. well, not, not yet. Well, who knows what, what might happen after these brilliant well, songs. Indeed. The thing is, I want to talk to you, actually, at some stage about your record collection, because it was the first thing you ever said to me. You said, Steve, I know I've got every single record. Every well, single record yeah, so, re- I, so I'm a 80s. totally frustrated DJ, because uh, I will talk to you about that. But I was a DJ from 1983 to 1992. It was my first ever business. And, right. the, and I was only, I think I was 13, and I was so sort of encapsulated and uh, obsessed by disco. And this was at a time when really we didn't have electronics and certainly flashing lights were, were sort of very exciting and sexy. And I did an apprenticeship with a mobile DJ. Wow. And then at the age of 13, I said to my dad, look, I want to start a disco. And instead of saying no, he said, put a business plan together. Now, that's extraordinary for a father. And so I did. I didn't really know what one, one was. Yeah. And he then basically gave me £600, which was a huge amount of money in those days. I then uh, bought this equipment and then ran that disco, paid it back, bought a car, bought a trailer. And so it, it showed me how to make a business and run a business. But also I enjoyed going to every single party and I was the most popular boy in the town. There And there we go. And I'm not surprised <laughs> about that admission whatsoever. Uh, you will notice that in the next hour, my pride playlist there are lots of up for it it's like a party extravaganza Yay! and lots of twists and turns in your career and that's why i thought you'd be a really really great guest tonight we are starting with track number one which is sylvester yeah so so this is an amazing track for lots of reasons i think i would have loved to have been around uh, this is from 1978 or thereabouts i was born in 69 so i was only nine but i remember this being so anthemic and and sort of encapsulating new york uh, and obviously that amazing disco sound that was coming out you cannot listen to this without actually breaking into a smile and just feeling great and it was really a very happy time and a happy place for me and I think that comes across in the lyrics and in the sound of this it's an amazing piece of music it's really camp it's really fabulous and it's really disco do you remember that time March. Oh yeah, absolutely. You do? Yeah, terrible fashion. I loved it. I mean, no, yeah, I do, absolutely. And I think, you know, we, I was, you know, uh, this is more about my private life, but I was, I knew I was different to, to other boys of my age. And, but, but there was something about these people who were, they were almost angelic. They were dressed differently. They were excitable. They were having a brilliant time. They, uh, and they enjoyed everything about it. Now, of course, there was an undercurrent that we, I didn't know about at that time which was obviously there was the HIV AIDS epidemic starting uh, to really bite at that point and but but for me this was hedonistic it was fun it was people in outrageous outfits and throwing shapes
It's Sylvester, You Make Me Feel Mighty Real. The first choice from tonight's guest on my pro playlist is Dr. David Ball. And thinking about it, they were a bunch of drug queens, weren't they? And, uh, you know, they, at the late end of the 70s, that must have been a real eye-opener <laughs> to a lot of people. Well, I think they were. And, you know, talking to people who were around at that time, it was just it was just so outrageous. Everything was bigger and, and larger than life. And I think also, uh, I'm a great believer. I'm a showman like you. I'm a showman. And I like dressing up. I've always liked dressing yeah. up. And um, and if you're going to perform, your costume is very important to you because it actually enhances your performance. And I think that's what that kind of era epitomises, mm-hmm. was the fact there was the hedonism that was running through uh, the whole time. But, you know, you can see when, they, when you listen to that sort of piece of music, just the pure joy that emanates from it. And, and I wish there was more of that now. Mm-hmm. We are going to go on to your next song, which is Chess, One Night in Bangkok. Can I, I mean, just... Because you, you did mention this a couple of minutes ago about when you realised that you might be different from other boys. <laughs> I think my mother did when I was born. So tell uh, me more about that. Well, I mean, it was extraordinary. I mean, you know, looking back, it was a very diff- different time. So, yeah, I knew that I was different um, when I was a, a younger boy. But obviously there was no such thing as gay pride. There was certainly no acceptance of anyone being gay or uh, or feeling uh, having feelings for someone of the same sex. But I knew I was different, but I didn't know why. And then it, was, it wasn't until much later that I, I sort of came to terms with it and accepted it and then did something about it. But also because I grew up in a family where that was not talked about, and certainly in the seventies, uh, it was just it was just not what what you you did if you were from a nice family. Mm. And so, but I think also, um, and I've said this a lot to people that I am very driven. Uh, and you can see that through my career. And I'm sure that comes about because I've had to fight. And I, when I was growing up, I was a chubby boy. Really? You won't, yeah, you won't believe Because you're so slender now. Oh, that's very kind. I'm, I'm not, but, uh, but this is all affect. Right. So I had to fight, and so I was bullied really badly at school by very good-looking boys, you know, and I wasn't sporty, I was fatter, um, but I had the last laugh. So when I went back to a school reunion, I was the one that was slim. I was, had, was toned. But this was because I took control. I realised I had to take control yeah. and to say to all of those who were really unpleasant to me this is my response you know i had i had to fight and so and that is true of all successful people i think and particularly people in show business or business you fight and you fight and 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 you do get knocked down and then you have to pick yourself up again and how hard was that when you when we look back on the fact that there like you said there were no role models no none so so you're fighting for the fact that you think you're different, you're being picked on by kids at school, there's no one to kind of reach up to or talk to, I mean I certainly at school didn't have anyone, any no. teachers or anyone I could go to when I was going through these problems, so it's quite well, when, when we talk about it, it seems quite a solitary experience, how do you think well, you it, well, did get Well it by? was, and, and it was worse than that because actually there was a culture of cover up so at school there was some very odd behaviour by teachers, shall we put it that way, and of course you were not allowed to talk out about it, I mean clearly now looking back Back. It was it was voyeurism. It was uh, I'd say it was abuse actually. Um, and then also something happened to me when I was very young uh, that I was not able to talk about until much later on, until I was actually in my 30, late thirties, um, where where I had unwelcome advances, shall we say? Um, well, it was it was worse than that. But um, I think that then staggered my development. 
because, of course, I couldn't deal with it. But also, I'm talking, and so I'm now I'm very old. I'm 50. What am I now? 53. And there are a lot of gay men who are 53 who I believe to this day are emotionally retarded. And I'd include myself in that. Mm hmm. Because, because there, well, there was no help, was no, there? No. You couldn't talk to We've anyone. We've just had to make it up as we go along. Completely. And then you Find see, our way. I didn't go to a gay bar until I was in my late 20s. And I remember, and it was Q Bar in London, which is owned by a friend of mine, Gary Henshaw. And um, I went into that bar, and it was like walking into heaven. Not heaven the club, but it was like walking into heaven. <laughs> yes. it, it, was, it was extraordinary. I actually cried when I walked in. Because there were people like me. Mm. And for the first time, when I was growing up in London, there was one bar, it was called Brief Encounter, and it was all hidden behind a black window. So it was all... And I went in there, and there were lots of gentlemen dressed in leather um, with sporting very interesting moustaches, <laughs> and that wasn't me. So there were no role models. But that first bar I went to had glass. You could see what was going on inside. And I went in, and I remember them playing Tampere La Mea, which, again, I should have included, but it's a brilliant piece of music. Um, and I just remember going in and seeing this and feeling quite normal, and that's when I cried, because I realised I wasn't that crazy. I haven't heard that for ages. It's my pride playlist. is Virgin Radio Pride. I'm Steve Denyer. Uh, opposite me, TV presenter, medical doctor, author and politician is Dr. David Ball. So tell me, going back to what you said a moment ago, what was life like when you first ventured out onto the scene? Was it a big deal? I was terribly frightened. And I remember walking round and round the block to get courage to go into this bar and looking back, how ridiculous is that? But but it, but it, but it was a big deal. And I remember walking in, and I think for me, what was the reason it was so important? It was because it wasn't older men dressed differently to me. It was young men, very trendy, good-looking young men. This was a normal rite of passage. And that night, and sharing my intimate uh, relationship, I made friends with the barman, who was a very, uh, very handsome uh, man from Wales, and. Um, and it was extraordinary. And I, I just remember this sense of euphoria, but more importantly, a sense of um, sort of shedding of so much emotional baggage. I mean, incredibly powerful. Um, and you know that when you get that chill up your spine when something really extraordinary happens, and that I got there. And, of course, our world was literally about to implode on itself. Uh, HIV was now a big thing. Right. So when I was 13, I remember reading about HIV, well, it was called GRID in those days, mm. gay-related immunodeficiency. They knew that gay men were dying all over the world. And, of course, you see, I, I may have thought that this is what I was, but then, of course, that then underpinned everything because the minute you do anything, you die. And so there was this shame, the cult of shame, and, and that has lived with me very heavily ever since and, and compounded by the fact that when I was an HIV doctor many years later, all these beautiful boys, and I mean beautiful boys, and I was was looking after them every single one died wow. and they died not 
in, in the most disgusting and horrid way. And the smell that emanated from those wards is something I never, ever want to see again. I never want to see Carposi's sarcoma again. You know, that is the lesion you see on the skin. That is what you saw in Philadelphia in the movie. And, yeah. and I was there in London at the forefront of what was going on. So it was really complicated for us. And, and I know you understand this. So you've got multiple levels of not being able to uh, be accepting of yourself, then trying to pluck up the courage to meet someone. And then there's this whole layer of it's bad, you shouldn't be doing it. And on top of that, you might die as well. I mean, it, anyone would struggle with that, I think. And, and that's why it took such a long time. Um, and on top of that, I had yet another problem, which was by then I was starting to become known. And so um, I, I, so here's a very good example that, um, you know, I met someone and may or may not have had enjoyed their company, shall we say. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, well, you know, I'd like to take you for, for breakfast. And he turned around and he said, no, I only, I only slept with you because you're famous. Wow. Okay. And so, so, so how did that make you feel? Well, awful, as you'd imagine. And so therefore, you know, th- just at that moment when I started letting my guard down, you, you know, I couldn't. And so that's why, and I go back to this point, which is I think uh, guys of our age in show business who grew up with all that baggage, no wonder they're emotionally damaged. Well, it's a miracle. <laughs> it's, some, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. Yeah, it, it is. Really well, it, is. No, it is. And also, so then there's um, what is very interesting, and I talk to older gay men, they are envious of us. Because, of course, we were the first uh, group not to die of HIV AIDS. Mm -hmm. And, of course, in some ways, I'm envious of the younger ones because they don't care. Now, very interestingly, and bringing this full circle, when I see young people coming into clinic, for example, I say to them, well, you know, you really ought to be, you know, thinking about HIV. And they say, oh, no, you can't get, I can't get HIV. Wow. And I say, well, why can't you? And they say, because I'm young and young people don't get it. Mm -hmm. And so we've come... Entirely full circle. This next song, and we'll play this now and we'll chat about it afterwards, Pointer Sister. This does represent the time we were just talking about. You know, certainly it's pivotal 80s. Let's listen to it. Pointer Sisters, so excited, but you probably knew that. It's my Pride playlist on Virgin Radio Pride. I'm Steve Danier, joined by Dr. David Ball, someone I've known for a few months now, but really, really getting to know tonight. It's great to have you with me. So I was told by this tour guide in San Francisco a few years ago, and I was on this tour of the Castro, and they said this startling thing that literally everyone between the age of 18 and 30 passed away back then. Correct. Is that what you remember? Yeah. I'm, I'm not I, old I'm, enough to... I, No, I'm not, but my friends tell me they never want to go to any more funerals. They buried every one of their friends. Not just one so or two, sad. but every one of their friends. And, of course, talking to two amazing friends of mine um, about that time, and, and one of my closest friends is Cleo Rockus, who obviously was the sidekick to Kenny Everett, and she tells these amazing stories of Kenny and Freddie and... Uh, and the parties they used to attend. And, of course, you see, no one knew anything. We knew, all we knew from San Francisco was that they, that gay men were dying, and no one knew why. And, of course, because they were gay, no one was interested. 
And so suddenly, it wasn't until we reached, and, and, and the really extraordinary thing, and I think actually Margaret Thatcher has to be congratulated for what she did because she pushed it where... I think the heterosexual community felt threatened because suddenly there was a disease that was no longer in the gay community. They didn't really care whilst it was in the gay community, but whilst when heterosexual people were then threatened by this disease which we knew nothing about, it was actually... uh, And the reason I, I mention Thatcher is because she gets a lot of grief for lots of things, but she was the one that said, we need to do a massive public health advertising campaign and say to people, there is a virus, we know it's out there, and you need to protect yourself. And I know she got kickback from people to do that but it was it you know and that just compounded all the fear i already had yeah because suddenly on television you've got tombstones falling well you? that's right i mean that i i can't see it now without feeling unwell and emotional you know those tombstones falling down and for those people who don't know what we're talking about the tombstone had chiselled into it AIDS AIDS. don't die of ignorance and of course what it did is it was terrified everyone and terrifies them to this day so medically we're now in such a different position with uh, the advent of PrEP so pre-exposure prophylaxis I mean it's extraordinary I have many friends who are living with HIV now people with HIV are living longer than people who don't have HIV yes yes and that's extraordinary. Yeah. And and in fact, I think that we've been very lucky in that we have lived through just uh, the era of an amazing change in medical science where we're keeping people alive. But we also need to remember and tell younger people that they also need to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. Amazing what you say. I just had a thought, you know, even I think a decade ago, it's still the AIDS HIV thing still was a cloud above us. Well, it's still there. And it will come and and people will be ashamed to tell you their status. All of a sudden now, you know, when you look at um, kind of hook up apps and what have you, people are a lot more out there with their status and a lot more honest and a lot more prepared to share that information. Yeah, and Do you rightly agree? So. I, and rightly so. And I always say I would much rather sleep with someone who's HIV positive and undetectable than someone who doesn't know their status. And so that that's a massive cultural shift. Interestingly, in terms of sexuality, talking to young people, they don't give a monkeys. We've now moved beyond the sort of binary notion of being gay and straight. And now everyone, you know, is in it for whatever you want. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it is extraordinary. Uh, I I find my, well, exactly, and I find myself bemused by most of it. I feel very, you know, old-fashioned uh, when when I hear, when I talk to like some of my younger relatives. When Doves Cry, the choice of my guest tonight on my Pride playlist on Virgin Radio Pride, Dr. David Ball. Now, your next choice, I love this, got a big smile on my face, Erasure, A Ship of Falls. And you've really got to give people credit like Andy Bell because they were out, you know, at late 80s, before it was okay to be out. Um, no, yes, you're right. But but again, he was a showman. So there was still a delineation because he wasn't real, if you see what I mean. So people saw him as a showman. Well, I mean, you know, if you talk to older people, they 
they think Liberace was a showman. I mean, come on. Um, you know, and that, and so therefore it was dressed up as showmanship. But um, the reason I, I find this the, a very powerful song, and w- whenever I play it, um, I burst into tears. Right. And I don't know why. Um, I think, I think, I don't know what, what it was written about, but um, Erasure are a brilliant group, and Ship of Fools just sort of sums up for me my history, probably many of our histories, that we are on a ship of fools, and there are many fools in this world, and probably I'm the b- biggest fool, if that makes sense. And that foolish for not being able to be who you are, foolish for not being able to love who you want to love, mm-hmm. foolish for listening to people who will tell you otherwise that you should behave differently. Um, and I have to tell you, I went to see Erasure. I've seen them a few times, actually. But I saw them at the Hammersmith Apollo. I don't think it's called that anymore. Eventim Apollo. Eventim. Eventim. Yes. Hasn't got the same It's not of, the same no. ring. But anyway, I went there, and it was a proper concert. Uh, this was recently. And um, again, they their performance was outstanding. But I looked around the audience, and it was all people our age, uh, who were obviously loving it. Huge gay contingent there. We were drinking pints of beer from plastic glasses sloshing around <laughs> it, it on the floor and I thought it's like going back in time <laughs> it was amazing as is this track yes and and talking about um I remember Andy Bell on going live the late 80s and, and Philip Schofield said to him what are you doing Christmas and he said I'm spending it with my boyfriend and I remember thinking oh, my mum was in the room do you know what I mean I hadn't heard anybody talking no. about and I was like oh my gosh I didn't know how to feel back then <laughs> it was quite an incredible thing he, he should be congratulated I think well indeed and they were role models but of course they were able to do it I suppose when they were a little more insulated but for most of us who were going about normal jobs and certainly you know look I was a doctor in 93 Mm. Oh my goodness, that's a long time ago. Um, I was a doctor in 93. I didn't really know any gay people. And certainly in a career like medicine, which is very formulaic and very structured, you behave in the way that you're expected to behave. You certainly don't talk out of turn or out of step. And Mm. so... So again, that was another reason I'm emotionally retarded, <laughs> probably. <laughs> do, do you live with shame, much shame and regret that you couldn't be the person that you've always wanted to be, that it was so difficult? Do you feel that you've missed out a lot? No, weirdly, conversely, um, because I couldn't, that's why I've been successful. I'm sure of that because I, I couldn't channel my energies into my my um, sort of relationships or emotional life. I channeled it into my work life. And it wasn't till much later that I then decided, well, you know, I'm, I don't really don't care anymore. And that's when I then sort of did that whole, I, it wasn't really, it, it, I've never really come out, but that thing about I really don't care. I don't care what you think about me. I'm going to dance badly to, to great songs. Um, and, and I've seen that with a lot of my friends is they reach their 40s even mid-40s and then let, let their hair down. Yeah. So so do, do I regret it? No, it, it, it is what it is, you know. It's, but at the same time, I am convinced that's why so many gay men of a certain age are so successful. They couldn't do anything else but concentrate on work.
Okay, next choice. Um, I'm really, really excited to play this very loudly. In fact, too loudly. It's Black Box right on time. I know it's a little left field, but so bear with me. So okay. running disco. Mm. So we've got disco tunes, Casey and the Sunshine Band, 1983. That's a very good song, by the way. And then, so basically, we had the same sort of music. And, and for me, it was big black women, divas, you know, all of that, you know, Pointer Sisters, Sister Sledge, and so on. And then there comes a piece of music that changed the face of music, I think. And that was Black Box Ride on Time. Why? Because it took the disco sort of a theme and beat but then this for me was the advent I, I may be wrong I'm no music you know pro but this is the beginning of dance music it was the first time I'd ever heard anything like it. Mm. And the vocals on this track are absolutely extraordinary. So it's a sample, isn't it? Samples is it Loretta Holloway oh, Yes, that sounds familiar. Sampled it. <laughs> Um, and I, as a kid, saw it on top of the pops and thought that woman's got a hell of a, hell of a hell voice, of Ama- yeah. amazing yeah. lungs. But, but I think she was lip syncing to the sample from years ago. Yes, and the band encountered problems. But but they but did. But that's the point, you see. So they've taken an iconic disco track, let's mm. say, and then they put the beat with it, and that turned into the first of it. And, of course, technology was changing, so they could do that then. Mm. And now we end up with this incredible piece of music. And then if you look at the patterns after that, many tracks try to emulate what Black's, Black Box did. Yeah. And actually, Black Box did another great uh, song called Fantasy. They did. But so, so going back to that thing about yeah. Black Box, it was also that those vocals mm. are so sort of penetrating and fantastic and for me that then links nicely into Sister Sledge uh, Pointer Sisters all of those amazing people like Whitney Houston for example those great vocalists um, who who really are just ex- ex- frighteningly brilliant What can I say? Absolutely exhausted after trying to sing that and match her tones on that song. A black box, right on time, on Virgin Radio Pride. It's my Pride playlist. I'm Steve Denier. Sat across me is Dr. David Ball. Now, Pet Shop Boys, It's a Sin. What a band. And it's got to be said, what a song. The reason I like It's a Sin particularly is it's very orchestral. It builds, and and it's just I don't know. It's just beautifully put together. It's a great feel song, a feel good song, um, and of course it probably links back in my mind to difficult, tricky times, and probably speaks silently about things that were a sin. Mm. And of course, as you say, it's now been reinvented by a whole new generation. And actually, watching it's a sin. I mean, again, I was in pieces. I was going to ask you, <laughs> did it? Because I really affected me. Yeah. You know, really affected me. Was it a tough watch for you? Yeah, it was. But it was beautifully done, beautifully acted. But of course, yes, absolutely. You know, in a, it reminded me again of of just being so helpless, even as a doctor, trying to look after people with HIV AIDS, mm. and and just watching them disappear in front of me and um, it's a very cruel disease it's an incredibly cruel disease and of course the extraordinary thing about that is that you you got that illness that virus from merely doing something that we are put on this planet to do which is to love someone and and I found that really hard and particularly as a, a 28 29 30 year old doctor when I'm treating 17 year olds 
who may have had one sexual experience. Heartbreaking, isn't it? Absolutely heartbreaking. And of course, uh, to not only did they not understand it and we were learning all the time and we didn't really have we had one drug we had AZT and it was a terrible drug it was like giving someone bleach um and just watching just how how really helpless we were as physicians was extraordinary and I'm I'm thrilled we no longer see it I mean people still die of HIV AIDS but we just don't see the numbers that we once did and the mm. drug, drugs are now brilliant and there is an amazing clinic and uh, which I have uh, been supporting for a long time Dean Street which is part of Chelsea West 56 56 yeah, yeah. Uh, run by a, a brilliant guy called Alan and their target now, and they were the ones pushing for PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis. Mm-hmm. I was then involved in trying to push the government to to do that by saying to government, look, if you can stop, the cost of HIV drugs is so exorbitant that why not try and prevent HIV infections in the first place? And so actually, I think one of the biggest miracles of modern medicine, not only is penicillin, but I think HIV prophylaxis is pretty much up there. Will we have a vaccine or have we got one? Will, will we ever have like a single jab that prevents you from getting it? Well, it's proved very difficult um, because it's a retrovirus and I think in the, the original vaccines were not that great. Yes, there is work ongoing. I don't know where we are with that. But I mean, now it's a game changer. It's a game changer. You take a tablet once a day mm. uh, if you're on continuous prep or you can take it for what we call event-based uh, driven prep. And now you don't get HIV if you take it. I mean... That has wow. happened in my lifetime. Even in the last decade, if, yeah. if you were to tell me that ten years ago, it would have seemed a million miles away, wouldn't okay, it? Completely, and, and, and also, the other thing that goes hand in hand with this is the government pays for it. And that's crucial. So finally, and finally, gay men are being actually treated equitably by the health system and by government and that's taken a very long time to get to Mm -hmm. did you and i hope you don't mind me asking uh this did you have you lost friends over the years yes it's personally absolutely you know And, and actually every patient was personal and particularly when i used to go in on um so i'd be looking after them and i'd go in on a monday and they weren't there just like that yeah and then I would get a call on my pager from the mortuary and I had to go to the mortuary and, and you know, essentially uh, sign their de- death certificates. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you know, it was just... Ugh. And it, how do you horrific. talk to, you know, like a 17, 18-year-old who mm. is in his prime and he's just been told he's going to die? I mean, well, how would you... What do you say? Uh, with compassion. And also, you, I mean, watching those those shows back like it's a sin, at that time, they knew, because if they got sustained weight loss, if they got the rash, if they got Carposi's sarcoma, you've seen that in that show, I think, where they then develop the rash, they look at the rash and they know... That time's that up. Almost. Time is up. Yeah. yeah. Um, horrific. And also then, you see, the other thing, it's not just about talking to, to the young personal, and they were often alone because, of course, no one no one would admit they were in a relationship with them or whatever. But then you had to have the double whammy of talking to their families mm. who knew, didn't know. Which was so brilliantly played out in It's a Sin, yeah. wasn't it? Because, yeah. um, you know, Richie's mum... I just thought, that's my mum, that's, yeah, that's totally. how my mum would have reacted. But it's extraordinary with parents, you see, because the thing is, whilst they love their children, um, they can't come to terms with the fact it's their son. It's it's about them, actually. Yeah. And, you know, that I've heard that a lot from people, 
So the parents are struggling not on two levels. One is their their child is dying or has a an illness, and this other level is what will people think about me? Yeah. Yeah, of course. And I've seen that happen, and particularly in, in very close-knit, particularly rural communities here, where people are ostracised. But here in London, no-one gives them monkeys. If somebody... I just must ask you this, because it could be valuable to somebody. If somebody's listening right now to our conversation mm. on Virgin Radio Pride and they're scared, they're frightened, that possibly they've put themselves at risk. Yeah. But because of all the things we're talking about, stigma, you know, parents and what have you what's what's the advice well i think the most important thing is don't be scared you know a problem shared is a problem halved and quite frankly that it's it you know if you are in that position i can honestly tell you the relief you will have when you go to see someone and that and then they will either say okay we have you you've got a problem you may have hiv but the great news is we can treat it but equally if we say okay you don't have it then you also know and knowledge and i have a great expression Knowledge is power. You can only take control if you know your status. So get tested. Right, let's play your next track. It's Whitney Houston, I Have Nothing. We'll play this and then I'll ask you all about it after we hear this. One of Whitney's best. this song Whitney Houston I think was the most incredible vocalist she was a very tortured soul mm. but I think this is a particularly brilliant song uh, for lots of reasons I suppose it goes back to being anthemic it 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 can't fail to move you uh, I also lived in Los Angeles for um for some years did I, you? yeah I did a, a TV show out there oh, it was wow. hysterical and that's I suppose why this song is so important to me because the night that Whitney I had a te- alert from someone that Whitney Houston was critically ill mm. and I was on the same street Wow. Okay. And so I then, obviously, then uh, she was at the Beverly Hilton. Yes. And I th- it then transpired that she died. And I remember feeling so bereft that we had lost such a great talent. Mm. But also I understood that she had trouble with management, that she felt trapped in her career, as many artists do, actually, where, where you've become so big that there are people managing you and you no longer uh, have control over your own destiny. And I thought it was incredibly sad. So 
you were like this tremendous doctor. Very, <laughs> well, very successful. Well, I don't know about you that. You still are. But so how did the TV thing start? Oh, so I was a showman since I was a young child <laughs> and I wanted to be in television and um, so I made a conscious decision. I'm trying to think back to when this would have been. So this is not about um, 95 and I thought the way in was through medicine. This new satellite thing had started called Sky yes. in 95. Yeah. Can you believe it? And I auditioned for the role of uh, a doctor giving travel advice, which I got, and I started on Sky Travel. And then I wrote to the BBC with the idea of doing children's health on television. And there was an amazing man who met me called John Craven. And John really liked the idea. Now, John... Newsround. Uh, Newsround, indeed. He came up with the idea of Newsround. John met me and offered me a job for three days a month. And it was because I was so passionate I wanted to do it, I resigned from my full-time NHS job <laughs> to do that for three days a week. And, and my mum actually thought I had a brain tumour. Um, because <laughs> All that work. It, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, like parents are that. My son's a doctor. Yeah. And then they're like, what have you done? And so, um, and then I joined the BBC at that time and I gave myself, and actually looking back, I was quite rational about it, I gave myself a year to see if I could make it work. So Very I, sensible. Yeah, exactly. So I ran around BBC Television Centre, by the way, amazing building. So we, there were eight main studios. It was called The Donut because it looked like a donut. And, and and I was in TC2 or 8 doing news round. And then there would be Blue Peter in 5, Live and Kicking were there in 1. And then... Uh, I met people. So I remember one day meeting Terry Wogan in the lift and he said, oh, you were marvellous this morning. You know, and that. so we then had Dancing Girls and Camels and you name it, it was all there. (laughs) But the brilliant thing is I then was fortunate enough to be given Saturday mornings by a great guy called Paul Smith who ran BBC Children's Presentation and from there it just snowballed and then the next big move for me was um, a very scary lady called Anne Robinson um, <laughs> asked me to do Watchdog with her Wow! and that and so it just took off and then from Watchdog I got Watchdog Health Check which I presented with Gabby Roslin and um, it was amazing a primetime health show on BBC One we were watched by seven and a half million people every week yeah. and of course I had good editorial input being a medic so it was an amazing show to do and from there Tomorrow's World I killed that I was the last presenter of Tomorrow's World <laughs> and then obviously my career then went in variously weird directions including hosting the world's largest live ghost hunt well we need to talk about that one we soon. do Most Haunted Live yes you are, we were lots of people I mean even this morning when we were on the radio <laughs> together I saw that tweet from somebody saying how lovely to see you I haven't <laughs> seen you since Most Haunted yeah, Live well yeah. where have you been but yeah so and, and it's really interesting actually when I meet people People know you for something. Yes. They don't know your career, but they know you from whatever or this or yeah. that or whatever. Well, for me, it was Newsround. I was first it? saw you oh, right, on yeah. Newsround. Right, now let's get ready for your next song. And a warning should come before this song, because if you thought we've heard some camp numbers so far, we're really going for it now. Dana International. International on Virgin Radio Pride on my Pride playlist is Steve Denny here chatting to Dr. David Ball. I'm guessing you picked that because of Eurovision. Oh my goodness! So I, I am a huge fan of Eurovision, um, and um, I, Katrina and the Waves have won. And I was very fortunate. I was working at the BBC at the time. I then went to uh, the Eurovision Song Contest held in Birmingham, and that was the year that Dana International actually 
won. And I remember her winning, and it was the most extraordinary thing. Here was here was this great performer from Israel who defied all the odds, came out with what is, I still think, a brilliant, a brilliant song. Quintessentially and, Eurovision. This oh, as so well, Eurovision, so camp, so so over the top. And then she went off, if you recall, and when she'd won, came back in an entirely different outfit, <laughs> um, which you got to love. I think yeah. it was parrots or birds or feathers or whatever it was. But this is a brilliant song for lots of reasons. It also underlines and goes back to those whole Q-bar days of, of just being free, feeling happy and being able to be who you are. Mm. Do you do you feel that you've made... Have you made peace with you, yourself? You seem a very sorted individual to me. Whenever I've, you know, you met you, um, there's a lot of authority going on. There's a lot of experience clearly uh, exuding from your <laughs> lovely face. But, but, but are you at peace with yourself? Are you? I think so now. I think, you know, would I do things differently? Yes. Um, what would you do differently? I, I think I have become very good at uh, keeping people out. Because I've had to. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, it's very difficult to meet someone. I'm still single, can you believe? But but the part of that is also because I can't cope with this. You know, if you go... And I've been for these blind dates recently. I went through a matchmaking agency. And literally, I want to saw my own feet off. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, because you start the whole thing of, you know, what do you do? Yeah. I haven't got time. No, you know, no. I don't... And also, I don't really want to go through all this again. You know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So so I think you're more likely to meet people through friends. Mm. Um, and also COVID didn't help because of lockdown. Oh, yeah. I then was not in London. So blah, blah, blah. So actually, it's quite nice to have a, a personal life again. Are you open to the idea of meeting someone? Yeah, absolutely. But or, it would take a very strong person. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, you know, the thing is, I think sometimes I've been single for too long. Would that apply to you as well? Forever. So for you, my entire life, pretty you? much. Yeah, yeah. Does that make you sad? Oh, does it make me sad? Um, no, because I probably haven't dwelt on it long enough. Let's talk. Let's go into the final song then. This is so much fun, by the way. Are you enjoying it? Yeah, I'm loving it. Thank you. Michael Bublé. Um, Before we play Michael Bublé, should we talk about... So, so many strands of your career. We've obviously (laughs) spoken about being a medical doctor, a television presenter, working with Anne Robinson, going to LA, you know. And then, on top of all of that, we've got... The political guy yeah. and the guy that I know now. Yeah. Because we only met each other a couple of months we ago. We did. But obviously, you're on talk TV. You're known as a political person, aren't you? I, I guess d- so. You are. Am I? Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah, absolutely. Well, so so I've always been interested in politics. And I, I suppose the thing is that I'm a great believer in, in making things different, changing things. So I was in the Conservative Party for many years. In fact, I was a prospective parliamentary candidate for the Conservative Party. But they they were they were vile to me. Really? Um, I was the candidate for Brighton Pavilion. And I was against Caroline Lucas, who was the Green Party candidate who then became the first Green MP. Mm. But when my fa- my father died whilst I was in Brighton Pavilion and uh, I was called by the Conservative, local Conservatives who said basically I went home to look after my mum uh, because she needed me and I was told if I didn't get back to Brighton they would deselect me and I told them where to stick that mm. because of course family is far more important than anything. And then uh, David Cameron uh, essentially dispatched Eric Pickles and I sat with him. It was hysterical. I was called to a meeting. We sat on a park bench overlooking the Thames right next, in Victoria Gardens, next to the, uh, the House of Parliament. And he said to me, David has said that I'm to do everything I can to keep you. And I said to him, if I'm meant to be 
supporting a, fa- a party that believes in the family and you treat me like this, I can't do it. And so that was initially how I got involved in politics. And then the big B word appears, Brexit. And I wasn't involved. I just want to say that. I was not involved <laughs> with that vote. I know Claudia Lysa, your co-presenter, kind of blames you yeah, for the whole thing. but it wasn't me. So the thing is, we had the vote. Now, I uh, so we had a referendum. David Cameron never thought, never thought he would lose that referendum. No, yeah. And because they were stupid. They didn't think it through and they didn't understand the country. And that's what I was going on about this morning, about the fact that actually many people in power do not actually know how real people live and don't understand struggles. And so they had a vote, right? We voted to leave. It was pretty obvious. That was 52 to 48%. We voted to leave. And then they did everything, everything not to leave. And that's when I got cross. And never get me cross, because I do things that are really annoying. Like, for example, so therefore I thought, right, this is ridiculous. So I I mentioned to people I was working with, right, I need to stand, because it's not acceptable that you've asked the public a a question, they got an answer, and now they don't want to do it. So I then had mentioned that I, I wanted to effect change. Next thing I know, I flew back from holiday, and I was standing in my underwear... <laughs> unpacking and the phone rings and I pick up the phone and this voice says hello David it's Nigel Farage well I nearly fell over the balcony <laughs> so I was thinking well I'm in my pants um, so and Nigel asked me to stand as a, to, for the for the European elections and blow me down I get uh, I get elected as an, a European MEP I go to Brussels and we were the largest single party in the European Parliament and of course uh, we then forced the Conservatives hand and they then enacted Brexit now I agree it's not a good deal. But how could I vote as a Brexit Party MEP against Brexit? I can't. So we voted for a pretty crappy deal, but we hope that they would then finally change that deal. And guess what? This week looks like that we may be at that time. So that Liz Trust finally is saying what I've been saying all along. And actually, Ben Habib, who was on this morning with me, we need to tr- either trigger Article 16, but the sanctity and union of the United Kingdom is paramount. It is time to put this great country back in a great place. Thank you so much for spending the last hour. I've really enjoyed it. Have you? Yeah, I've loved it. I Thank mean, you so much. The songs were amazing. The company's been great. Oh, thank and, you. I, you know, I've learned so much about you that I didn't know. <laughs> Is that right? An Seriously. Hour ago, honestly. And so. yet we, and we share a studio. Often. We do, yeah. but, uh, you know, it's just kind of minimal chatter, I suppose, yeah. isn't it, in between yeah. our breaks and stuff. But, Dr. David Ball, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Birds flying high. You know how I feel. I feel so good. Thank you so much for listening in. That was the My Pride playlist Pridecast. And make sure you subscribe to hear loads more good stuff from Virgin Radio Pride. The Virgin Radio Pridecast. Proudly supported by Disney Plus. Full of stories and love for all.